A reading from John's first letter. Beloved, let us love one another because love is from God. Everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, for God is love. God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And and this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Beloved, since God loved us so much, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God lives in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to John. A Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. His disciples had gone to the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink of me, a woman from Samaria? Jews do not share things in common with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have no bucket, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our ancestor Jacob, who gave us the well, and with his sons and flocks drank from it? Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but those who drink of the water that I will give them will never be thirsty. The water that I will give will become in them a spring of water, gushing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I may never be thirsty or have to keep coming here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come back. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you say the place where people must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You worship what you do not know, We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeks such as these to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will proclaim all things to us. Jesus said to her, I am he. 
the one who is speaking to you. Just then, his disciples came. They were astonished that he was speaking with a woman, but no one said, what do you want, or why are you speaking with her? Then the woman left her water jar and went back to the city. She said to the people, come and see a man who told me everything I have ever done. He cannot be the Messiah, can he? They left the city and were on their way to him. This is the gospel of the Lord. Let's pray. God of love, we thank you for these beautiful passages of scripture. We thank you for the gift of this time together this morning, and we pray that your spirit would indeed be here among us and that you would open our minds and our hearts, that we may receive your love and that we may perceive something afresh or perhaps new that we've never seen before about the way you move toward us in Christ and that you would stir us up to be a people who love one another as you have loved us. And so we ask your blessing now on our time in Jesus' name. Amen. I love this quote on page three in your bulletin, the reflection quote from Tim Keller. It says this, To be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved is, well, a lot like being loved by God. It is what we need more than anything. It liberates us from pretense, humbles us out of our self-righteousness, and fortifies us for any difficulty life can throw at us. Could I ever be truly known and loved? That's the question we're considering this morning as we continue this series that we're calling Questions That Linger, in which we are acknowledging that questions have their place in the life of faith and following Jesus. And we're also exploring some of those questions, particularly those that help us reflect deeply uh, on what our life together at City Church is all about or what we want it to be all about. And this question, could I ever be truly known and loved, is such a huge one. It's one that we all desperately want to be true. Yet if we're honest with ourselves and we just look at our lives, it's also one that we simultaneously spend so much of our time and energy making sure that we never actually find out if it is true. If they really knew me, would they still love me? The possibility of a no answer to that is just so utterly terrifying, isn't it? We fear exposure. We resist being known in relationship. We resist even knowing ourselves. And what we do is we opt out of being loved in order to avoid being known. We actually choose to withdraw from that which we most deeply desire and most deeply need in order to avoid what we most fear. And we know that's insane. We know it. But we do it anyway. I do this. You do this. The person sitting next to you does this. We withdraw from one another. We hide. We posture. We pretend. We shore up our sense of self in our public image in all sorts of ways, right? With accomplishments or assets or titles or a new wardrobe or whatever. 
and we obsess over the digital versions of ourselves that we curate and project for the whole world to see. And we hypermanage those things. And we judge other people, right? We degrade, we shame, we ridicule other people. Why? Well, in order to make ourselves look better by contrast in our own eyes or in the eyes of others. And why do we do this? It's because that's just how powerful shame is in our lives. Shame. It's that venomous, sneaky devil that lurks in the shadows of your heart and your mind and whispers ever so convincingly, you're not enough. You're not lovable. You're damaged goods. Don't show them you. In fact, don't even show you you. Make a better you. Make a pretty mask and show them that instead. Be that instead because you, you are not enough. You know that voice, don't you? I know that voice. And you hate that voice, don't you? I hate it. But you believe it, don't you? Just like I believe it. But here's the thing. That voice is deadly. And we know it's deadly. But we have to be reminded that it's deadly. Because that voice moves us where? It moves us into isolation. It moves us toward loneliness. And loneliness, many are now saying, is such a serious public health concern in our country that it ought to be called an epidemic. Um, Psychology Today reports that a recent study shows that uh, in the last 50 years, rates of loneliness have doubled in the U.S., And about one in four people report feeling rarely understood. 40% of people say that their relationships are not meaningful. The negative effects of persistent loneliness are well documented. We know that loneliness often correlates with things like cardiovascular disease or sleep problems or anxiety and depression or diminished satisfaction and productivity at work unhealthy coping mechanisms like substance abuse and the compulsive use of technology, and that list just goes on and on and on. The voice that pushes us toward isolation and loneliness is a deadly one, and we know that. But here's the other thing. It's a liar. It's a liar. It's a very skillful liar one that is incredibly difficult to disbelieve. But what we see from these two texts of Scripture that we just read is that Jesus exposes that lie, the lie of shame, in order to liberate us from its tyranny and lead us into the wholeness that we so long for in the depth of our being, to be really known and truly loved. And we see this in two important ways. One is this, we see that in Jesus, the God who knows you, the God who knows you just as you truly are, also embraces you just as you truly are, with unconditional, unflinching, life-transforming love. God knows and loves you completely. That's the first thing that we see. And the second thing that we see is that the God who knows and loves us completely also calls us, the community of Jesus' followers, to love one another the way God has loved us in Christ such that we would become a place that both we and other people come to know this liberating, shame-expelling, life-healing love of God through real, 
concrete experiences of being loved and known by other people. So I want to think about this first one, about God, that he knows us and he loves us completely. And I want us to think about this passage from John chapter 4 that we just read, uh, the story of Jesus and the Samaritan woman. And it's this incredible story of Jesus meeting this woman who is living a life that is marked by incredible shame. What do we know about her? Well, for one, uh, if you are reading this from the vantage point of John's readers, if you're someone of a Jewish background who is uh, wanting to follow Jesus in the first century and you're coming out of a, uh, an Israel-centric or, or Ju- you know, Judea-centric kind of way of thinking about things, Samaritans are bad, okay? Um, you don't want to be a Samaritan. It's, it's, to be, it's to be someone who's outside the pale of God's favor and love. If you're also living in that world, to be a woman is to be of lower status as well. And so right off the bat, when the story begins with a Samaritan woman comes to draw water, we know that this lady has two strikes against her already in terms of being someone who's legit, okay? Someone who's accomplished, someone who's worthy of love in the eyes of that cultural moment. But there's more to her story, isn't there? As we learn more of her story, we discover she's not just a Samaritan and a woman, but she's lived a really broken life. She's lived uh, a life of immorality and probably a lot of pain. She's coming to draw water uh, at noon, at the hottest part of the desert scorching day, because nobody draws water then. You draw water in the evening when it's cool. She comes out, presumably, so that she won't run into anybody. She's an outcast. She's at the margins of society. She's a shamed person. But there's Jesus. And she encounters Jesus. And he is just not the least bit freaked out by her at all. Right? All the unimpressive things about her, all the things that would be black marks on a resume, Jesus doesn't recoil from her at all. He engages her. And he engages her in a way that that honors her, that affirms her humanity, that affirms her dignity. And he he asks her, right? He asks her questions. He asks a favor of her and then engages her and draws her out into conversation about her life. And what we see unfold is this incredibly redemptive encounter of this shamed woman meeting Jesus who knows her, who knows her, yet unlike everyone else, doesn't recoil, but he engages her. She's not outside the reach of God's love, and Jesus makes that very real to her. And what we see unfold is this story of this woman having the shameful things of her life brought into the light, and she's not undone. She's not crushed. She's liberated. She's loved. And she goes back into the city and she can't help but spread the news. You've got to come meet this guy. He just told me everything about my life in a way that was good news and not crushing. 
this liberating, shame-expelling encounter with Jesus. And it's not that he just affirms that all the unlovely things about her life are actually lovely, right? That's not what he does at all. It's just that he can see the reality of her dignity beyond the brokenness. He can see the beauty of this woman as an image bearer of God, a beloved child of God that lies beneath the brokenness, that lies beneath all the stigmas. He can see that she is one known and loved by God, no matter what anyone else might have to say about that. And she experiences in her shame the embrace of God that changes everything. What we see in Jesus is that this story of humanity that's a story really marked by hiding and blaming from the very beginning. If you read the very first stories of the Bible about what do humans do, it's like they hide and they blame and they hurt one another and they isolate themselves from God and from one another. They turn away from God, they turn against each other. This is what we do. This is the human project. But it's also a story that from the very beginning has God's relentless, merciful, loving, persistent seeking out of his beloved people who hide and blame and hurt one another, who do awful things. The story begins with this merciful, provocative question as God coming, walking in the cool of the garden, where are you? To his people who are hiding. And from that moment all the way forward, the story unfolds toward God coming himself in person in Jesus to walk among a shameful and hiding people to become one of us. And not only to become one of us to come find us in our shame, but to live among us out of such a deep-rooted sense of the love of God that he would be willing not to shame us, but to take our shame to himself to become the one who is shamed so that in him we might become liberated. This is what God's love is like, and it's what we see in Jesus. God knows you, and God loves you. And his love, it is gratuitous. It is gracious, it is forgiving and healing and transforming. It is unreserved, it is free, and it is available to you and to your neighbor without exception. If it's available to this Samaritan woman who would be last on the list, it is available to you. And it is available to your neighbor, to the one that you think is outside the pale. And what we see also is not only this nature of God's love and how he embodies it in Jesus and reveals it to us, but we also see in this passage from 1 John this picture of what our life together in a community can look like and should look like when we become a group of people who are radically committed to loving one another the way God has loved us in Jesus. This community that loves because God has loved us first. And this community that loves in the way that God has loved us in Jesus. A community that loves in such a way that makes the invisible God visible as we walk in his likeness and love in his likeness. We see God's love as this reason why we exist. We see it as this pattern for how we relate to one another. And we see that it is the fruit of our life together. God's love is what becomes visible in the world. A world that cannot see God begins to see God when God's people love one another the way he's loved us in Christ. People like Kurt Thompson and Brene Brown who have written and spoken a good bit on the topic of shame all say basically the same thing. 
there's only one pathway to healing from our shame, and it's vulnerability. And there's only one cure for our shame, and that is the embrace that we receive after making ourselves vulnerable in community. The problem is, it's scary to become vulnerable, isn't it? It's really terrifying. The promise of liberation is thrilling. To think about what it would be to be known and loved is thrilling. But the terror of possible rejection is so daunting that many of us opt out and never ever give it a go. Never actually entrust ourselves to the love of others and therefore remain unloved because we don't let anyone love us as we are. As I was thinking about this, I was remembering a story. Um, I hadn't thought about this in years. Um, but when I was about 11 or 12 years old, I went on a rappelling trip with my Boy Scout troop. And we went up to the North Georgia mountains. And it was one of those rocks where it's, it's an easy hike up one side, you know, but then it's got a, a sheer cliff. And so we, we hiked up one side and we're going to rappel down the other. And um, I got so scared at the top I got all harnessed in and everything. We'd practiced this. I got so scared at the top, I couldn't make myself go over the edge. I just stood there just trembling. And I'm not afraid of heights. Like, this is not characteristic generally of the way I relate to being in high places. It was, it was really strange, and it was so embarrassing. Every other kid had no problem at all. They harnessed up, they went and went down, and I just wept. I walked down the other side. I watched everybody else do it. I wanted to do it. I wanted so badly to do it. But I couldn't bring myself to make myself vulnerable, even just a little bit, to trust that the rope and the harness would hold me. I knew they would. I knew it. But I couldn't enter in. And so I didn't. And I watched from the outside looking in. And I wonder how much of my life uh, can I understand through that metaphor, right? Being unwilling to risk the vulnerability that you need to enter in to the joy and the wholeness of life. And I want very badly for that not to be the metaphor for the best and most important things in my life that I would opt out of being truly known and loved because the risk of being known is so scary that I opt to be on the outside looking in instead. Do you feel that? Do you feel the thrill of the potential of the liberty of being known and loved but the terror of what it might take to get there? The calling of the community that we, that we find in this passage in 1 John is that we are to be a people so committed to loving one another the way Christ has loved us that we become a place where people begin to feel safe enough to take that risk and to begin to know what it means to be known and loved. I just want to reflect a little bit on my own experience here since we are thinking about um, our mission and vision as a church um, 
I've been thinking about this, and, um, and I'm, I'm not a person who naturally moves toward vulnerability. And so um, partly because I move quickly through the world, and I, I think I'm a future-oriented person. And so I don't just, like, think a lot about how I'm feeling. I don't stay tuned in very well to me, um, and therefore to you, probably. Um, but I've just been thinking about what does it mean for us to live out of this identity that we have in Christ, that we are the beloved, that we're not what the lie says, right? That you're not what your shame says. It's not the lie, the lie that you're not enough, the lie that you ha- you are, you're unworthy of love. That's not true of your life. What we see in Christ is that, that is absolutely fundamentally not true of your life. You are the beloved of God because he has loved you in Christ. And he calls us to live together out of that identity and to practice being the beloved. And so I was just thinking about what is, you know, my own story. I, I feel myself very much as a beginner on that journey of practicing being the beloved. But I can tell you that having spent a decade of my life in this community, um, I know both God and myself so much more deeply than I did 10 years ago. I feel very much like a beginner, and in many ways I know that I am, and I know I've only begun to scratch the surface of knowing myself and knowing God, but I've scratched enough to know that I want more, and so much of why that's true is because my life has been planted here among you. And I just want to think about several factors of why that's true, and one is this. I've been, for the past decade, here in this community, in relationships with people who model vulnerability for me. So I actually do life among you where I actually see people going first, right? Harnessing up and going over the edge to make yourselves known in community that you may also be loved. Uh, And that is so inspiring. It's what, um, my wife is so good at this. Bonnie's so good at this. I've often called it the spiritual gift of going first, right? If you've ever been in a community group where everybody's prayer requests are for like Aunt Betty's knee replacement surgery, uh, it's like 40 degrees removed from your lived experience of today. And then that one person is like, I am really struggling and this has been the hardest week of my life. It's like the, the next prayer request is like, a lot more serious, right? It's not, it's not, we're no longer praying only for things like Aunt Betty's knee, um, but we're like, hey, I, I'm really scared and I'm really confused. I don't, know, I don't know how to parent my kids or I'm having a really hard time in my job or loving my spouse or all the real places where we actually live and we begin to actually come alive together as we make ourselves known to one another. And I've seen that. I've seen a community do that, and that's been shaping for me. Relationships with people who model vulnerability for me. But I've also been in relationships with people who risk vulnerability with me in order to allow me to love them more particularly. And that's incredibly powerful and inviting for me to enter into your life, enabling me to actually love you where you really are. And it makes me want to do that with you. One of my seminary professors used to say that the basic unit of ministry is two people praying together. How can I pray for you? How can you pray for me? And that together we come into the presence of God as those who are knowing one another and knowing God together. But I've also been in relationships with people who gently and compassionately and honestly reveal me to me, right? Those who are so courageous and loving toward me that they'll speak the truth in love into my life. You just can't know yourself by yourself. 
And so to be rooted in a community that's practicing this loving one another as God has loved us in Christ, it, we speak the truth and love to one another. We listen to one another. We invite people to speak into our lives. And we hear things that are sometimes painful. We hear things often that are also encouraging, things about ourselves that are good that we don't see. And we have to be in a community like that if we're going to be actually knowing ourselves, knowing one another, being known, and being loved. Another reason I think my time here at City Church has helped me embark on this journey is just quite simply counseling. Counseling. It was here that I began to recognize I probably need it, and it's here that I began to recognize it's okay to do it. There's no stigma attached to it. It would be foolish not to do it. It's incredible how powerful the things that we struggle with as adults are rooted to stuff we've suffered in our childhood and, and coping mechanisms we developed and family systems we lived within. And you can't just sort through that stuff by yourself. It takes a skilled professional to help you. And here is where I actually began to recognize, you know what, I need help. And it's okay to go get help. And actually, here's the name of someone who might be a good helper. And if that's where you are, be liberated. An incredible first step in knowing yourself and becoming known can often be meeting with someone who has the skill set and the tools that can help you do that in a way that is liberating. And I've also been in a community here that cultivates skills and practices of how you become known. You know, becoming known is, it's, there's an art, right? There's an art to telling your story. There's an art to understanding your story. Not everyone needs to know everything about you. We don't need to be vomiting our stories all over everyone all the time. There's a skill to this, a skill for how to reveal yourself in ways that are actually upbuilding to the body, right? Uh, that are not inflicting yourself, on everybody else. And I think one of the hard things, you know, you talk about this metaphor of going over the precipice with the rope and do I trust it to hold me? Well, one of the legitimate questions that often becomes a roadblock in becoming known is like, can you handle my story? How do I become known when I don't know if you can handle me? And that's a perfectly legitimate question to ask for any given individual because like your hairdresser, your mailman, they may not be able to handle your story and you may not need to share that with But who is? God has placed you in a community that is full of people, wise, mature, faithful people who have heard a lot of stories and they can hear yours. Who are those people? Will you move toward them and begin to become known and allow them to help you to know how to make yourself known in ways that will bring greater health to you and to the community as a whole? It takes work. It takes time. It takes skill. But this is what we're committed to being at City Church is a community where we practice being known and loved. And as I said, I feel very much like I am a beginner on that journey of knowing myself, knowing God, knowing what that means, but I'm comforted by these words from Thomas Merton, who is one of the great, uh, I say, um, examples of people who lived deeply in exploring the great mystery God gives us to explore in communion with him and, um, and of knowing himself, and he says this, we do not want to be beginners but let us be convinced of the fact that we will never be anything else but beginners. The mystery of God is vast. 
His love for you is deep and rich and particular and it touches every area of your life and those may be areas that you have explored and feel great shame about. They may be areas that you have never explored and are completely blind to. There is a vast, beautiful, liberating journey ahead of you and God is faithful and he knows you and he searches you and he loves you to the depth of your being and he says to you, Come, drink of me your whole life long. It's okay to be a beginner. The journey is long. Our God is good and faithful, and he's calling you to enter in with him. That's the kind of community we want to be at City Church. May God give us grace that it would be so. Let's pray. Our God, we acknowledge that you know us, You search us, you see us, and as terrifying as that may be, we are comforted by the fact that you love us entirely, that there's nothing about us beyond your gaze, and there's nothing about us beyond your love. Thank you for revealing that to us in Jesus, and thank you for giving us experiences of that with real human beings in the body of Christ that we see and talk to and touch even now. And I pray that you would be at work in our community by your Holy Spirit, growing us up together into Jesus, that we would become people who would live vulnerably with one another as you have made yourself vulnerable to us, opening yourself up to being wounded so that love might flow from you. God, would we live toward one another like that? And would we know the thrill and the freedom and the life that comes from being seen and known and loved by you and by those whom you've given to us as your hands and your feet and your loving embrace in our lives. And may we be that for our neighbors. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.